Across the West, and hopefully East Coast, and for that matter, the Midwest too, snow is falling on our ski hills. My social media is filled with images of happy skiers, clapping ski poles, making those first few wonderful turns of the season where we all think, this is not just like riding a bike, it is better than riding a bike. For our first ever Dirtbag Diaries movie night, we picked Buried, the story of the 1982 Alpine Meadows Avalanche and winner of the Telluride Mountain Film Festival Audience Choice Award. That year, at the tail end of the season, a massive blizzard hit Tahoe dumping foot after foot of snow. Patrol closed the mountain, but could not have predicted what would happen next. A massive avalanche broke loose, wiping out the base area. What followed was a desperate, heroic search for survivors. The idea behind the movie night is that we could all watch a film together and then sit down and go a little bit deeper. So if you haven't seen Buried yet, you might want to save this episode until you've watched it. You can find it on Apple TV or Amazon Prime where you can rent it. But if you were able to catch our free screener for the last weekend, let's dive in. Today, I'm chatting with Jared Drake and Stephen Singh, the film's co-directors and residents of Alpine Meadows. We go into the process of bringing this story to life and how community heals from a deep wound. I'm Fitz Call. You're listening to The Dirtbag Diaries. you guys just go ahead and you know introduce yourselves yeah i am jared drake i'm the co-director producer of buried my name is steven sig i am co-producer director and writer of buried the 1982 alpine meadows avalanche obviously this is a story that has a lot of power in your community even though it's from 40 years ago why now why 40 years later is this still important Oh my gosh, that is an awesome question. And in fact, that is probably the one question we kept asking ourselves making the movie. You know, why are we making it now? What is different Mm -hmm. about making it now than if we had made it in 1982 or 1983? And for us, we debated for a long time whether or not this movie should be made, you know, Mm -hmm. if it's gonna help more than it hurts. And what we realized pretty quickly is when we sat down with subjects that were there in 82, they immediately jumped back to 82. You could see it in their eyes, you could see it in their emotions, you could see it in their body language. And the story for them hadn't been written and it hadn't been finished. If they're still living it, how are they coping for the past 40 years? How have they persevered? How have they found a way to keep moving forward? And if we can extract that and tap into that truth, then that's something that we can pass on to audiences all over and, you know, give them that strength. I mean, we're all dealing with our own problems, you know, big and small, not necessarily this scale or magnitude. We're all dealing with baggage and we're all dealing with our own trauma in some way. So if we can extract kind of, what our characters have learned and how they've persevered these last 40 years, then that's relevant today, regardless of if you live in the mountains and no matter what you do, because 
we all need a little bit of hope and silver lining and and something to take away yeah yeah and the inception of the project really started some years ago and it was a story that we didn't want to get lost you know we're all getting older and it, it was kind of one of these things that we have to make it sooner than later because it's been so long but the inception of it actually came from our protagonist uh jim plain and he had been asking me to make the film and i really wasn't in a position that I felt that I could do this film on my own. And Jared and I started to work together soon after he moved here to Alpine Meadows. And that's when I realized that I had a partner that understood the business a little bit better than I did. I came from an action sports documentary background and Jared had just more experience in understanding of filmmaking. And that's when I realized that we together could make this film and give the film what it needed. It's a powerful story. And so we had to tell it in a powerful and engaging way and, and give the weight that it deserved. So the partnership really, it was kind of serendipitous in a way, you know? So 40 years later, the two of us get together. We're both residents of Alpine Meadows. We both wanted to make stories from our backyard about our backyard. And that was really the inception and the understanding that now we could go do this because we together had a better understanding and that we kind of needed to make it like we didn't want somebody else to make this film because we don't think they would give it the the weight and the power that it needed it's so interesting too that you i don't use the word literally lightly but you literally live you know at the location that this happened and and you know looking up at those slopes right there i mean obviously it's like you, you drive towards the parking lot it's all right above you. You see everything where this happened. I'm, you see the lift line where the, the patrol shack got taken out. I'm curious for you all, like with the process of making this film, how has it changed your relationship to that mountain, to that community of skiers that populate that mountain and, and make it a, make it a place, make it a community. Yeah, I can, I can say for myself personally, um, <clears throat> you know, I moved up to Alpine nine years ago uh, from LA and you know my wife and I it was very much our kind of idyllic you know getaway we both grew up in small mountain towns we thought we knew what it meant to live in ski area and snow terrain and we very quickly realized that these mountains are different it was about that time like after the first year or so moving up here you know Sig and I were talking about maybe doing the movie and as I learned more about what happened in 82, what happens every year, what goes on in the Sierra, it's really just scared the shit out of us, like my wife and I. And we were like, okay, we either need to beat it and get out of here because it's gonna bite us like it does, you know, most people who live obliviously and try and travel in the mountains, or we gotta dive all in and try and understand it and learn it. And so <clears throat> the film for me was like a, a very kind of selfish pursuit in that regard. Like I wanted to understand what happened and learn from those that have been through it. And what I found was different than any other film I've worked on. You know, we made the movie, it took about four years to shoot, you know, and, and get a good edit down. I was saddened when production ended because the process of learning and interviewing and continuing to unpeel this onion 
have gotten so rich that it has pulled my wife and I and our kids now closer to this community and closer to these mountains. And they've gotten more beautiful in a weird, ironic way. And so for us, that's been kind of my my journey throughout is the the ugly realities of this landscape is also what makes it so magnificent and awe-inspiring at the same time. My world is a little different because I've, I've lived here for so long here in Tahoe and it got to a point where we're seeing so many people going into the backcountry and seeing so many um, accidents in the backcountry. And I felt that people are getting a disconnect of where they're playing in the mountains and that they have to be more aware of what's happening around them at all times. And it's not just the backcountry. They have to be aware in bounds because there's so many inherent risks. And it was one of those things where it was like, we need to use this story and the magnitude of this story to bring a higher awareness of what it means to live, work, and play in the mountains. And so it became, yes, in many ways, the same thing that Jared said, I needed to learn more so that I could teach more or bring a bigger understanding to where people are coming to live and to respect where they're playing and where they're living, et cetera. And this story does all of that. And it even transcends out of just snow and just weather events in general. Yeah. And there's been a pretty radical trend <clears throat> in, you know, backcountry travel and awareness and education. And one part of that trend is making observations, making and sharing observations. And I think that's been a, a real shift that we wanted to see and that we hope that this film would help, you know, propel, which is, look, if you come up here, like there's, you got to be aware. I mean, awareness is the key word we've talked about all the time. And so the community in the mountains been really supportive and behind it, which I think is awesome. Yeah, it is really interesting that the film, it's more about the sort of awareness of, hey, this is the reality. This is something, too, that, like, you're going to experience trauma. You're going to experience tragedy if you live in a mountain community. Like, that's that's the reality. That's going to happen to you not once, not twice, but probably several times. Um, and certainly Tahoe has seen its fair share of it. And then I also thought that the really intriguing part about it was the fact that it was educational because I think sometimes we take for granted that somebody created, somebody imagined the tools that a ski resort uses to open and be safe. And that even beyond that, someone kind of had to figure out the science and the mechanisms and the understanding of like what is happening in snow. And like you get this window into that of like that that team was special in that regard, that they really were sort of writing the textbook for how to do this. And I think that that's so cool because I think sometimes we can forget that in, in our day and age, you know, it's like a lift lift doesn't open or the mountains on hold or whatever. And people are pissed and they're blowing it up on Instagram. But this is like, this is, this is bigger and you know, it, it's more complicated. And I just thought that I thought you guys did an excellent job. I guess that was more a commentary than it is question. <laughs> but I, I do think, I do think, you know, that, that you, you did a great job of highlighting the tactics and all that just came out of an experience and out of people's minds and that the process of doing that also kind of changed them and definitely the, the you know this tragedy kind of really changed the course of people's lives too you know i think we wanted to focus in on ski patrol and you brought up a really important part 
of what we're trying to do is a lot of people don't understand the work that's going into open the ski area. And this is such a pioneering moment in the protocols and techniques that we use in the mountains. And the other fascinating thing that I found, you know, we have new technologies in, in avalanche mitigation, but the core was all out of these, I don't know if the word is mishap, but situations that, that arose when they were creating these situations of how do they deal with what they used to call controlling the mountain. And now we've realized that we can't control the mountain and we have to work with the mountain and we have to work with the weather patterns and people need to be aware that people are putting their lives at risk. And so we really wanted to focus in on what ski patrol does. And it would have been awesome if we could sit down and make, you know, a five part series because you could go through all of our characters and all of their arcs individually, starting with Monty Atwater, who was, you know, the pioneer of using artillery. And now where are we today? Now we have um, gas X, which I have above my house, which is the new mitigation program that they're using so that they don't have to put their personnel in harm's way. That only goes so far, you know, these are major installations that use oxygen and propane blasts that basically trigger smaller avalanches, whereas you still need these hand charges. Or even on the level of like, you still need someone to ski across the top of a smaller slide path you know like that there is that there's this like immersive level of it is like it's like yes there are more tools but it is still a very visceral uh job yes yeah very much so and now with osha you know rightfully so we have to be very careful when we're using these tools the ski patrol can't even use these explosives until the sun has fully risen above the ridge line so now we have to really start telling people that when the lift doesn't open at nine o'clock there are major reasons why you cannot tame mother nature. We have to work with her. We have to slow down, take a beat, look around, be more aware of what people are doing to try and get you up on the mountain so you can go have a great day. Because if they don't do that and we don't respect the work they're doing, you're going to end up dead. And, you know, this transcends over to the backcountry. There's so many people that have their transceivers and their probe and the shovel, but you know, I would say 30% of those people do not know how to use those tools. And don't don't get in a situation where you need to use them. Yeah, like you know, that's the key, Sending right? It, yeah. You have these tools, but you don't want to use those tools is the key yeah. to, to, you know, success in the backcountry. So yes, it was always like, we need to tell the story about a pioneering moment in ski patrol so that people realize what these people are doing. And now the biggest tool we have that Jared talked about earlier is the observations. So when people are out in the backcountry and they see something slide, those observations are so key to other people that are traveling in the backcountry now. And, you know, people just have to use those tools properly in order to stay safe in the mountains. Yeah. And the conversation of like snow control or avalanche control and how that term is now being pushed away for avalanche mitigation, I think is really telling about how kind of the snow safety community has evolved. Like snow science 
as everyone calls it now, if you take an area course or whatever it is, no science, no science, no science. Like, yeah, the science is there, but it only goes so far, you know, like you can't, you can't predict this stuff. You know, Jim calls it a combination between science and art. Like there's something beyond the science that you have to be aware of and respect. And one thing we heard a couple times from many of our subjects is the scorecard is imbalanced because you don't hear when they properly shut a mountain down and no one dies. Yeah. Like that's not on the scorecard. And so when you're mad at the patrol and you're sitting in line, like they're saving a life, they're saving your life literally that day. And you may not hear about it, but you're going to hear about the accidents. And that really sucks because the patrol, when they're shutting stuff down and the winds are high and snow is gnarly that day, they're out there protecting you. The work they do only goes so far, you know, they're doing the best job they can, but you are not entitled to show up to these mountains and, and be safe. Like it's not a, it's not a right. No. And if you want to do that, Mm -hmm. you know, that's why the backcountry is there. You have the freedom to do that. And I'll always say everyone has the right to live their life any way they want but don't put other people in harm. Yeah, totally. You know? And, yeah. you know, we've had an avalanche in, in Colorado where some backcountry skiers were up above I-70 and they ripped a huge avalanche out onto the highway. You always, you have to be more aware of what your actions are to other people. And, you know, I, I feel like sometimes we're losing that in our, in our society is we don't realize that there's cause and effect and the <laughs> things that you do will have an effect on other people. And, you know, same in the backcountry, we have so many people out there now. I'm horrified of somebody cutting something off above me. Because as you're traveling through the backcountry, you do have to put yourself in harm's way in order to get to a destination. You can do it as safe as possible, take safer routes, etc. But you're out there in the elements and those elements will talk to you. And, and you just don't want to be the person that triggers something onto somebody else. Yeah. You know, I think sort of one of the nuance too is, and and you guys did a great job of sort of demonstrating it with your graphics of showing how much snow actually occurred. And you guys obviously had another cycle like that um, last year around New Year's with the, with you know, where 80 was closed for, you know, was it like closed for four days or something like that? And yeah, there are blizzards and then there is a Tahoe blizzard. <laughs> <laughs> explain people what a Tahoe blizzard because it's like the coming of the ice age I feel like yeah well I've seen a lot of storms unfortunately and this this is my you know the dualities of life is I I was not here during last year's December storm but boy was I living it because my situation where my house is is in an avalanche pass so we get the phone calls early when they want to do the mitigation program above the road so we knew it was a big storm But the thing that happens in Tahoe is that we have a lot of wind. We sit right at the crest. And what happens here in these big Sierra storms is we'll get this big dump. It'll be cold, et cetera, et cetera. But then we'll have a rapid warming. And that's when you hear about the Sierra cement, right? So it gets heavy because we have this coastal snowpack. Um, And that is when things go sideways on you. And people, you know, They'll be like, oh, my God, it's Bluebird. We have fresh powder, et cetera, et cetera. But, hey, man, this is the Sierras, and you could be in some serious danger now that it's a beautiful day. You know, the rule of thumb that I kept hearing from our subjects is 
if you have high winds where they deposit, multiply the snowfall by three. So if we had seven foot storm where the winds are depositing, assume there's 21 feet of new snow. So that's an incredible amount of snow transportation and loading that's happening. Yeah. And, and, and correct me if I'm wrong, but it was like during the sort of course of that, that storm cycle, it was 13 feet of snow fell. Yeah. It's 80, 180 inches or something. Yeah. And then, you know, there's some lingering storms that we didn't get into in the film, but, but what's interesting about the difference between, um, the snow, the coastal snowpack, and then say like Colorado snowpack, which is super volatile and it's a much different snowpack because the coastal snowpacks here in California and say, you know, Crystal Mountain in Washington, our snowpacks can heal much better than an intercontinental snowpack. That's why, you know, getting as much information as people are traveling from destination to destination is how different snow can be. What I see, I'm actually scared of intercontinental snowpack. I have an understanding of the Sierra snowpack much more than I do interior. And people need to be aware of those different personalities. And, you know, Colorado, when they have a looming, say, a, a whore layer down deep, that doesn't heal. And that's when they have big consequences back there. And that's that scares me even more than our heavy, heavy stuff. And then the other thing that we have here in the Sierras is we have a lot of train traps. You know, I spent a lot of time in Alaska and everything sloughs because it's steep and it's big. And so it fans out. And whereas here in the Sierras, everything has a train trap. So a lot of things fall and go right into forests and valleys. And that's where you get these big, huge deposits from these big slides. And that's it's a scary situation. It is, it is a event for the few years I lived in Tahoe for, there was one season where there was like a good, you know, six foot kind of two day storm where it was insane. And I didn't get back home in enough time. And then I think there was a warm up at the end and like the, the road cutter, the, you know, like the, not the plow, but the actual one that like shoots, I forget what they call it, but that like shoots the snow out. Yeah. And just buried my truck in the driveway because the driveway was underneath the road so it like and i just hadn't time to get home and like undig the car i couldn't get my car out for like three weeks like it just all like froze solid and the the car was totally entombed by the snow and i was like you know just took the bus and hitchhiked to work for you know for the next month or something like that yeah it was you know it's it's magical but there's two sides to that coin for sure that metamorphosis is fascinating it'll fall it'll be this one personality and then say you have an avalanche, you know, and you always hear about, you know, then it, it almost turns into concrete, like what you had, yeah. the snow fell, the blower comes through, throws it again, and it coagulates. And, you know, this is the snow science behind it. And that metamorphosis can just, you know, your car's gone. Yeah. You know, it took them yeah. weeks to clean up the Alpine parking lot. They were finding cars and trees for, you know, weeks on end. Did Alpine just reopen and... You know, for the they were season. open two like weeks how later. oh they got open two weeks later afterwards. Yeah. I think a lot of people were processing trauma at the same time. They were like, "This is a business, and we have to keep going." And yeah, let's clean up and get back after it. And I don't know if that would happen today, but I think it was really back then. A lot of people took that trauma and had to dig in and go, "Let's just continue on." And you know, you have personalities like Larry Haywood who's like, 
this is tragic, but we have to move on. Let's get the mountain opened again and let's get on with our lives and not dwell on it where a lot of people retreated at the same time within themselves. So you see a lot of personalities and how they dealt with it. And that's what our, our movie shows is how people dealt with it. A lot of our subjects jumped deeper. Many went on to become fire chief like Meredith uh, at Truckee. Lanny ended up going into you know, more emergency situations in the Tetons. There she, was very little like support back then for yeah. ski patrol who have experienced some trauma, like almost none, you know? I would say none. Yeah, there was there none. There was none. There's a wonderful bit of editing. It was, the, I think, both the cat driver and maybe it was Larry too, where they both like can't even say PTSD, right? Yeah. Right. Like that they, yeah. they, they're like, they, they don't actually say that term correctly. And it's, it's sort of amusing to like, I mean, it's not amusing, but it's also very telling that those were that was not part of the vocabulary yeah back then for how people were dealing with this and processing moments like this um yeah and i wonder i mean two weeks later they open and it's kind of business as usual and one eye-opening part of all of our interviews was how little everyone had talked even though they'd continued working together and live in the community, there was very little conversation between any of the subjects in our film about 82. Mm -hmm. And even a lot of those that came out that aren't in the film, very little talk. There was a reunion 20 years after and beyond that, you know, very little interaction. And I think a lot of them were never given the chance to process and had to ultimately deal with it in their own way when when they just couldn't handle anymore and that could have been 10 years later 20 years later whatever but think back then it was ski patrol you do this work two weeks later let's get back at it mm -hmm. it's kind of crazy and then what we found we had a, a special screening on the 40th anniversary at ground zero and we had a lot of people show up to that it was like out of 400 employees like 200 and from, from 82 250 actually oh, wow. showed up at the yeah. 40th anniversary a lot of people who came up and said you know what this film started the conversation which was always something that we wanted to do was like we have to have conversations about this and it was amazing how many conversations were sparked by yeah. the film and that mm -hmm. people could deal with whereas jim our main subject he had time because of the court case that that followed and he was actually able to sit down with himself and go through all of this over weeks and weeks of of testimony so he had the chance to heal and find understanding that other people never had a chance to do so here mm -hmm. we have our film 40 years later and we're finding that it's a very cathartic spark of conversation amongst yeah. a lot of people who are there in 82 and beyond even our community i mean there's an awesome article that megan michelson wrote for outside magazine about how watching the film helped her process her trauma at tunnel creek yeah, yeah. it's an awesome article and we've heard that a lot like our our opening festival in telluride I remember riding down the gondola with a gal who saw the film the night before and she opened up and started crying about someone she lost in, you know, a car accident. And our hope was always that, again, whatever you're dealing with, no matter who you are, and 
what you're trying to get over that this movie will be a source of strength and will help in some way. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I'm curious about the the 40th anniversary showing because how how many people ended up coming out? Because obviously, you know, there's a lot of people inside of the the Tahoe community that weren't even alive for this mm-hmm. moment. Obviously, there were a uh, a huge number of employees from that era that returned for that moment. But like, just sort of tell me about that night. Cause that must've been a special moment. Well, so we had quite a bit of run up to that. We, <laughs> we screened at festivals, many festivals throughout the previous year. So this was 2021 and we had to give our community a chance to see the movie and experience it in their way however deeply they want to go. And so in December of last year, 2021, Sig owns a movie theater in town. He played the movie for a couple nights and they all sold out. So we played the movie for a week and they all sold out and he played the movie for two weeks and they all sold out. And we had something back then, it was like 40 screenings, the daytime showings, the matinees, the afternoon showings, the evening showings, they all sold out. And I mean, through that, it created a real conversation in our community about 82. And going into the 40th anniversary, it became a question of, okay, are we going to try and release the movie, you know, commercially this year? And if we don't, what can we do that's really special to the 40th anniversary? How can we create, you know, something that commemorates all of it? And the 82 crowd because of those screenings in December ha- became really supportive. They, they started their own Facebook group that you can only join if you, if you were an employee in 1982 at Alpine Meadows. It became very active, very, really private, people sharing stories, connecting after 40 years. And we opened up the question, hey, what should we do for the 40th anniversary? And they took it and ran with it, the 82 community. There were two gals, Sandy Harris and Karen Strohmeyer, who really ran with organizing the 40th anniversary event. And it started at 8 a.m. in the morning and they had festivities and reunions throughout the entire day. And it culminated with everyone sort of migrating to the deck of Alpine Meadows. And there was probably 300 people there. And they brought out a microphone, put it on a stand and let people talk and tell their story of 82. And there were people who refused to be in the film because they weren't ready to talk about their experience of 82, who got up there that day on the mic and shared their memories of 1982 for the first time in 40 years. Multiple people who we heard from family members across the board, they've never talked about this. And they went up in front of their community and shared their story. And you know, it was kind of this climactic moment at 345, which was the timing of the avalanche. Ski patrol went up on the ridge and they detonated seven hand charges, seven bombs for each of those that were lost. And it was an incredibly powerful day that finished with the film. And I remember um, we took over the Alpine Meadows Lodge. And if you've ever been there, it's a big lodge. And we ended up having to have two screens, two big 50 foot screens of the film playing. There was probably 600 people that showed up to the screening. We had room for 300, but it was standing. And I remember going into that night, not knowing 
man, what's it going to be like watching the film at ground zero? Is it going to just be too, too gnarly? Mm. And what I saw a little bit uh, and what I felt myself too was the, the weight that was lifted throughout the day for those that were a part of 82 carried into the screening a sort of celebratory vibe. The weight had been lifted and this night was now about them coming together for the first time and acknowledging what they've done. And the the vibe from that community was actually, I wouldn't say joyous, but it wasn't downtrodden. It wasn't, yeah, it wasn't hurt. somber. It was, there was a shift that happened. You know, I think so many people 40 years ago, including myself, we were tuned into, you know, pushing it down and dealing it within yourself. And then what we saw at the patio that day, when people that didn't want to talk about it, finally there was a shift and that they were like, it's okay to talk about it. I'm okay with telling my story now where they were very guarded when we reached out to subjects. And it was refreshing to see that because I think all of society needs to, to have more conversation to heal. And we saw that in real time. And the other thing that just fascinates me with every screening we have, every single screening, and this is not because of, you know, we're the raddest filmmakers in the world, it's because of the story. It is so engaging and so powerful to sit and hear it and watch this movie that you can't get up. It is so engaging. People don't talk. I mean, we have a couple pictures where everybody is fully engaged with what they're watching. And it's because of this story and it, it transcends to so many people throughout. And I think the hardest part of making a film like this is getting everybody in there. So we focused on the ski patrol, but we had firefighters, we had search and rescue. We even have stories of um, ski instructors you know, these groups of people and just skiers all coming together as a community. And that's the hardest part for us as, as filmmakers is that you can't include everybody, but you can take your subjects and make them metaphors, hopefully for other people's stories so that they feel like their story has been told too. And then that's when the conversations start. And that's just a super refreshing part of, of what this film and the story does. Yeah. And the last thing I'll say about the 31st screening, we're going to do that every year from here on out for the rest of time. Like it, I'm going to be 75 years old and I'll take a little projector <laughs> movie <laughs> might just be me and my grandkids, whatever. But it is such a important part of our community and the legacy. And we made it for our community that uh, we're going to do that every year. So if anybody wants to join us, come on up March 31st next year, 41st anniversary. Cool. The media landscape has obviously shifted, you know, a lot. And the fact that it's super spread out and sometimes for people entering into these sports or kind of like setting out in their 20s and, you know, making the leap, moving to Tahoe, participating in that wonderful ski scene, right? It's like, some of the reality of the way that we share and pass on stories, the mechanisms aren't there. Like I look at the climbing world and the magazines have kind of almost withered and died. And there's, you know, a few independent 
people that are doing it. And so some of that legacy of actual like, you know, we are a, a, not a fringe community, but we're like a, a niche community. And these stories matter, but the mechanisms for telling the story actually, despite the fact that we all have Instagram and all that, they sort of seem, things like this sort of seem to get lost. Yeah. And, and I guess from your, you know, your standpoints, why does the history matter? When you say you're going to drag a little projector up there for the next 40 years, like why? What's the conviction behind that? Why does the history matter? I think um, what's really important is oral tradition as now, I think it's oral video tradition. And so we learn so much from the past in telling stories. And Jared and I are consummate storytellers. And when you share stories, you learn something, not only about yourself, but you know how to live a better life, et cetera, et cetera. We're very visual now, society. And we have our Instagrams and those little stories, but you don't get, get any essence out of it. Yeah, it's not a lot of nuance. Yeah, you, you, you sit down and watch a film like this and other films, other documentaries, and you really immerse yourself and learn something. And it sparks conversation. So you learn something out of that conversation. And I think we lose some of that in some of the, the movies that are coming out. And so the tradition that we're trying to keep alive is telling people stories that have um, weight and meaning to guide us. I think what our big one was with this pioneering moment is in the end, we have to respect mother nature and the oral traditions that we hear, we hear from native Americans that I feel that we're losing a lot of these stories was so important in having reverence for the earth and an understanding of weather and how important our little spaceship is here. You know, mother earth provides us and so these oral traditions are now video traditions, and I think that they're very, very, very important, and I don't want to lose those. And I'll be next to Jared just like this, next to his little projector, and teaching our kids and showing you know these stories that are important so that they can carry on and have a better understanding of yeah. the world they live in. Yeah, I mean, that if, if you don't tell a story that's meaningful to you that you think has purpose, then it might as well not have happened. That's the sad thing. Mm -hmm. Like if we hadn't have captured this story through this film, then it might as well not have happened. You know, where are you going to learn about it? And there's been publications in the past, but our version of the events is the version that we believe is true. We didn't feel like it was properly ever told for what they went through, for what they learned, for what everyone experienced. And if we didn't capture it, then it might as well never happen. And that's, that freaking sucks. And this isn't the only story to tell. Like everyone out there has stories that are important to them. That is history. And we learn from history. We grow from history. If we're not looking to history to grow, then we're just going to be a bunch of duds, our culture and our community and society. Like, we have to learn. Find a way to tell whatever story it is that's meaningful to you. Maybe if you don't even want to share it, don't. But document it. Like, have it and document it. You know, art, music, whatever. Just find a way to do it. And the important thing for us going into the movie was we wanted it to live up to what our characters experienced. And 
if they felt like we didn't do their story just justice, we were ready to shelve the project because it's their story first and foremost. But at the same time, we wanted to make a film that really worked as a movie that was entertaining, that takes you on a roller coaster. And a lot of those times, those dichotomies don't really gel in the film world. It's like you pick one or the other and yeah. someone's going to be burned. Your subjects are going to be burned because they feel like you sensationalize something or the film's going to be compromised, the structure, plot or whatever, because you're really just trying to stick true to the truth and the integrity of that. And like you have to scratch the itch that everyone has now because Instagram's driving the landscape of how stories are being told and it's flat and there's very little depth there. There's value in it in some way, I think. I don't know, but we wanted to have our cake and eat it too. Let's take a film that can hit broad audiences and really work as a story that is meaningful to us. Because otherwise, like this event will come and go and that's it. And that sucks. Maybe with just the last, you know, two minutes, could you give me the the hard elevator pitch for the film? Mm-hmm. Hard elevator pitch. You know, the 1982 Alpine Meadows Avalanche has a lot of stories that we can learn from. The film is something that everyone can take something away from and to learn from other people's tragic stories so that maybe our lives don't seem as tragic as they can and that we can find a way to deal with all of the things that that interrupt our lives. Sig and I going into making the movie really wanted audiences to leave the theater feeling better than when they went in. And if we can extract a sense of beauty and hope and whatever it is that our characters have used to give themselves strength these last 40 years and pass that on to the audience, then it's it's a film that's relevant and meaningful today. So although it's it's dark and heavy, there's a light in it and there's something in it that will give you strength moving forward in life. Making movies is not easy. And it's the people that you surround yourself with to tell these stories that make it as powerful as it is. And our crew from Matt Mercer, our editor, to Julian, our composer, and even Evan Hayes and, and MJ and, and Michael Sugar, everyone that came into this project, we were all following Marco Galuski's, our financier, who allowed us to build a team to tell this story. And the team, just every single person resonated to this story. And it's something that is very important to Jared and I is that this is not necessarily our movie. It's our community's movie. And it was a community of people that came together to give it the strength and the power that it needed to make this story resonate so that people can use it um, as conversation awareness and to find some light in their lives.